KFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. It is now 3 p.m. Stay tuned for Cover to Cover, Open Book. Welcome to Open Book. I'm Richard Walensky. My guest is Joyce Carol Oates, whose latest novel is The Accursed. Also in 2013, another novel came out called Daddy Love. Joyce Carol Oates is the author of more than 50 books, including Gravedigger's Daughter, Blonde, We Were the Mulvaney's, Belle Fleur. Joyce Carol Oates, at the end of The Accursed, in the acknowledgments, you have a sentence, The truths of fiction reside in metaphor, but metaphors here in the book generated by history. When you say the truths of fiction reside in metaphor, what do you mean? Well, fiction, the history, is selective. If you were writing about a soldier who had been wounded 11 times, and you were writing fiction, you would probably write about him being wounded once in great detail and, you know, and explore that experience. History is is obliged to be accurate in terms of quantities, but fiction is selective and therefore it's metaphorical. I once read a novel called Blonde about Marilyn Monroe. I was extremely selective. She was in a number of foster homes, like let's say nine or ten, but I only wrote about one because you can't do that in fiction. You can't be just blindly faithful to the reality, otherwise it doesn't have any dramatic urgency. And dramatic urgency forms the basis of the accursed, but there's also a great deal of history, a great deal of information given us, and a lot of it concerns life in the Gilded Age. Now, granted, the book is a thriller and a horror novel of sorts, but it's also a historical novel. Yes, that's true. I did a lot of research, and it was a a great pleasure to do research. <laughs> I've done this research before for other novels set in the in the 19th century, in the late 19th century, and this is the very early 20th century. As you say, the Gilded Age. This book began as part of a series of novels that included Mysteries of Winterthorne, Bloodsmore Romance, uh, a whole series of books that looked at life during the Victorian era. This was also during the middle days of the Reagan administration. Was there any relationship in your mind between your interest in that period and the Reagan administration? Oh, yes, I think so. That's a good question because I think most works of historical fiction are about the time that they're supposedly about, but they're also about the time in which they're written. And so when I finished this novel, when I was working on this novel, President Obama had been elected for his first term. And that casts a certain light or shadow upon some of the events in the novel because it's a novel that explores the social injustice of white bigotry against black people, whom whom they call Negroes, and the African Americans among them, among the white leaders and the ruling class. These African Americans, in many cases, were their own servants. They liked them as individuals, but as a class of people, they couldn't really grant them humanity. And I wanted I wanted to write about that. I understand that you didn't quite get a handle on the book for 30 years. It, it kind of sat there because, well, why did it? 
Well, I think it's a complex um, question because other projects intervened. I would look at this and I would start rewriting it and then I would get distracted by some new idea. I wrote a number of novels in all those years, you know, like one of them is Blonde, which is the life of Marilyn Monroe. So I was doing other things that interested me more or more ready to be done. With, with this novel, I always needed, I needed to tighten that. I had a manuscript that was about maybe 800 pages long. So basically I had to rewrite the whole manuscript which i would not have minded doing but i wasn't quite ready and then something twisted something turned something happened after obama was elected what what happened well it may not have even been that related to it, it was more just a sense that when i went back to it the last time in 2011 i found a way that i could change the voice the voice was too 19th century so i made it a little more modern and i introduced the key being the the moral blindness and refusal of the white upper middle class to acknowledge the rights of black people and at that time in 1905-06 there were very few white people who really would grant african-americans their full humanity but my focus is on leaders like woodrow wilson and church leaders because they should have been leaders in their communities if they had gone in front of their congregations and talked about the humanity of african-americans then it would have made a big difference what they did was nothing they just didn't do anything. There were racist mobs who were lynching black people and terrorizing them. And these white leaders, these so-called Christians, really didn't do anything. So the novel then took a focus. I was going to talk about the accursed, that these are accursed people, the white people. Were they accursed from a class perspective and suddenly realized there was more to it than that? Well, it was more of a class perspective. And the Presbyterian minister... Reverend Slade was always the one, the one who had committed a crime, and it was against a young woman, a girl. Probably in the, the original form, it was more of a feminist, maybe more of a feminist novel. But in this version, the young woman or girl is a black girl. So it is a feminist work, but it's also dealing with race. Joyce Carol Oates, there is a kind of supernatural element to the book, but as I was reasoning The Accursed, I realized that what you had done is, outside of some sequences in some place called the Bog Kingdom, outside of that, the voices in people's heads, the evil thoughts, which could be coming from outside of them, could also be coming internally. Yes, that's true, especially with Josiah Slade. He thinks to himself, he's, his conscience has been somewhat wounded, and he's thinking punishing thoughts to himself. That's true. And I think in gothic fiction, these supernatural creatures, often vampires, are meant to be symbols of a rapacious ruling, ruling class. You know, the original Dracula was a nobleman who preyed upon peasants, his own people. He was a vicious pedophile, I guess. And so to me, it's a parable or something like a fairy tale, a very dark fairy tale of how the ruling class preys upon the people. So that's the clue 
to my novel, but it's probably the clue to most of my writing, actually, <laughs> because I'm from the working class. I'm from even a class a little bit below the working class, and so I'm very sympathetic with what my parents and grandparents had had to endure. That I myself have escaped that because I, I was educated and I'm a professor, so it's more that I'm identifying with people from my own past, my ancestors. Could that be one of the reasons why you focus in so many of your works on the Victorian era, the Gilded era, because that is an era where the class distinction is clearer? Very painful, very painful and outrageous. The way these people, by these people I mean the capitalists, the way they exploited their workers, including children, you know, as young as four or five years old, they really, really were vicious people. And yet they pretended to be good Christians and they went to church and they had all these pieties, but they're absolutely vicious people. You can't be, you can't be critical enough of these people. The more research you do into the history, the labor history in the United States, the more upsetting it is. However, the novel's not really about that. <laughs> the novel's about other things. I just got kind of carried away. But the novel's also a, a series of love stories. There are overlapping love stories and romance, and which I'd also believe in. There are several real characters, real historical characters in The Accursed. Probably the most significant two, I would guess, because they're both almost point of, they are point of view characters, are Woodrow Wilson and Upton Sinclair. Yes. The more I read about Wilson in the book, the angrier I got, he was not a good man. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true. You particularly feel it if you're a woman or a black person because he is so condescending. However, to say some good things about him, he did reform the university. I don't know how bad it was before he came, but he did reform it, and he introduced different kinds of teaching methods. I mean, he did some good things. He had some good ideas, but at the same time, he was extremely paranoid. And one of the things I discovered about him is an extreme hypochondriac and was dosing himself with all these these medications that, that were laced with opiate. When I was thinking about Woodrow Wilson, you know, there's this one really strange oddity in the middle of the latter part of the 20th century named Richard Nixon. And then we start looking for really weird people, and it seems as if Wilson is up, right up there. They're all like Nixon. <laughs> They're sort of all like Nixon. They have different masks on. Well, Woodrow Wilson was a very, very serious, devout, Christian bigot. He believed, I think he actually believed that Jesus Christ had anointed him. Whatever he was doing, if he was president of a university or president of the United States or head of the League of Nations, he actually felt that God had mandated that. And I don't know how you shake somebody out of that conviction, but I'm afraid many of the world's leaders right today in other countries, they all feel that way. They really feel that God put them in that place and that they can just do anything with impunity. It's not just Woodrow Wilson, but many, many other people. There's also... Um uh, a lynching, a KKK. How visible was the KKK in New Jersey in the area around Princeton around the turn of the, of the uh, 20th century? Well, I'm not sure that the KKK was active 
yet. There were racists who were doing things, but I, I think the actual Ku Klux Klan may have been organized a little later. It's a work of fiction, so I don't know what what these people call themselves. They may have not called themselves anything, but the Ku Klux Klan has a certain symbolic meaning today, so I just I call them the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, how do you think, because um, you've written many books on this, how did the women deal with the fact that so many of their husbands were so set, dead set against their getting the vote or having any say in anything. Well, many of the women were the same way. It was sort of a class thing. Uh, educated women of a certain class were the ones who wanted the vote. Complacent, Phyllis Shafley sort of women, uh, as long as they thought they were protected by being married and having fathers or husbands taking care of them, they didn't particularly want the vote, and they were then they were jealous of the of career women. So it wasn't just male female; it was sort of a class thing. And it's the working class women who didn't have protection, who didn't have financial independence. Those are the women who really who really had to work for the vote and really, really suffered for it. I mean, it was not easy. Well, in creating your characters, the only character I could think of who might have become a suffragette would have been Wilhelmina. Wilhelmina, yes. I, well, Annabelle also is quite rebellious near the end. She marries the black man, kind of runs away from home. And she would have been, I think. I mean, they're still in her early 20s at the end of the novel. They still have some, a lot of living ahead. And Upton Sinclair would have been a feminist if the idea had come to him. He was a, he was a very active socialist, but he was so young and naive. His own marriage wasn't wasn't very good. You chose to bring him in. Was that just simply because he lived in the Princeton area at the time? Oh no, not at all. He represents the younger generation that's counter to the old conservatives. He's a socialist and an atheist, and they're conservative and and Christian. I mean, he's a natural counter and he and jack london though jack london of course wasn't always so helpful but jack london's heart was in the right place originally then he he became kind of spoiled that is actually the way he was at one point upton sinclair says that when the socialist revolution happens in 1910 or 1912 was that actually in his writings did he actually feel that they were within six or seven years of a socialist revolution it's possible that he said that it is quite possible i think they i think they felt the revolution was was coming when you're facing a huge mob and they're all shouting agreement with you you get a confused sense of of your power you think well the revolution's here it's coming like tomorrow you're listening to an interview with joyce carol oates whose latest novels are the accursed and daddy love joyce carol oates so many of your novels have kind of genre twist to them what role do you think genre plays in being able to tell a more political or social story? Oh, genre can be used in many different ways. I guess one of the best examples would be the use of parable or fairy tale as in Orwell's Animal Farm. When you pick up a mystery novel, you know there will be a mystery revealed in the first chapter, maybe the first paragraph the mystery starts to open and then each chapter moves toward the elucidation of the mystery and the final chapter always must 
explain or in some way resolve the mystery. There's a contract between the writer and the reader in genre. So with a novel like Daddy Love, which is in some ways a genre work, a suspense thriller, it starts literally with the first paragraph and goes through the novel, and then it ends. And there's been a, a definite plot, very clear plot. This has happened, that is certain things have happened. It's not like reading a more literary novel, like Finnegan's Wake, <laughs> let's say, where you vaguely know what's going on at all, and, and it goes around the circle. The last line is sort of the first line. And when I write a literary novel, I don't feel obliged to make things explicit. It's more that you're hinting that this is the end of the novel, and there's a trajectory that it it's probably going to end over here in this way. But with a mystery novel, you're supposed, you're supposed to end it so that the reader is not baffled and frustrated. When you walk away from, say, a mystery novel, you're kind of going, okay, I'm satisfied. Whereas if you're walking away from a novel like The Accursed, what it's doing is producing more questions in your head. That might be, and also the characters seem to be living beyond... You know, there are a lot of characters, and, and they represent different points of view. In a typical mystery of detective thriller, there are maybe not that many people, and it, they're not really about ideas. It's more, I think it's more of a plot. Or there might be a kind of simple adumbration of good and evil, and evil is overthrown at the end. But when I write a mystery of a psychological thriller... I'm also concerned with it not having a cliched ending, if I can avoid that. It, it, an ending has to be more complex. Which came first, rewriting The Accursed or Daddy Love? I think Daddy Love may have come first. Daddy Love is published by Otto Penzler at Mysterious Press, whereas The Accursed is a mainstream novel. It's a long novel. It's published by Echo Press. Of course, they're related, but they're, they're different, kind of different kinds of publications. Well, where does Blackwater fit into that? Blackwater seemed to me to be more like Daddy Love. It feels as if there's an engine turning at every minute. That's a good point. I have three novellas about young women that I wrote around the same time. Three or even four short novels about young women. Uh, meeting their destinies, they don't all die. Um, just sort of confronting destiny. So I wouldn't put them in a in genre. They're more liter literary, I think. It struck me in, in Daddy Love that I was feeling the same kind, like I said, an engine. That there's an engine at work. For me, Daddy Love is moving toward that magical moment when suddenly, almost without thinking about it, the boy picks up a shovel and he hits this guy over the head. And that's like the climax of the novel. He has risen against his oppressor. He's knocked him down. He might have been able to kill him, but he runs away. Until that point, he's been hypnotized and enslaved. But suddenly, he's about 11 years old or so, he picks that up. And to me, that the, the novel is moving toward that. That's Todd Slade in The Accursed. Doing the same kind of thing. Doing the yeah. same thing. Yeah. I guess you're right. Well, I never thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're talking about one book, and I'm thinking that's a key element of another book. It is a key element. That's true. Well, obviously, I have faith in young, the younger generation to rise up against their oppressors. That is a very good point. 
Well, see, nobody's, nobody has ever talked about these two novels together, and I've never thought of them together at all. This is the first time ever. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you're laying some transparencies together. Well, that may be something that, that you or a reader can do that the author can't. Well, when people do ask you questions, Joyce Carol Oates, do you find yourself going a lot of the time, wow, that's true, but it was never conscious, I was just writing? Well, I think that's true for most artists, you know, whether Vincent van Gogh or Picasso doing things that have a certain trajectory or pattern, probably the artist is not aware of it if you call the attention of the artist to it then the artist may see it immediately say oh well of course i did that it's like eugene o'neill who is always writing about someone like his father or hemingway's always writing about women a little bit like his mother faulkner's always writing about something characteristic and shakespeare has a certain streak of misogyny that recurs from play to play though the plays are about all different things you know there's sort of in shakespeare there's kind of i call it a signatory element it's a signature of shakespeare signature of thomas mann signature of james joyce it's not that these people are necessarily repeating themselves. It's somehow it's it's deeply imbued in, in their being. That's almost how you know it's sincere. It also creates a, a, a personal element that sets that That's particular right. author apart. That's right. I do tend to believe in the power of younger people to rise up against elders. I think I've always believed that. It was reinforced in my reading of Henry David Thoreau when I was about... 12, 13, 14 years old. Reading Henry David Thoreau was, a, was important to me because he's a very voice of adolescence. And he's a voice of adolescence as moral imperative, the morality of being an adolescent, of challenging your, your parents. That isn't all that common, you know, in literature. Usually it's the parental, it's the older establishment writing fairy tales to scare people. But Henry David Thoreau... And to some extent, Emily Dickinson, the, the very spirit of adolescence in a, in a good way. Then getting back to the accursed, would you say that that is kind of an element that runs through all of your books, from Mulvaney's through accursed and even blonde? Well, not so much blonde. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Blonde is really a tragedy. I thought of blonde as a tragedy of a way of life. Uh, sort of pre-feminist way of life where a woman could only be a blonde bombshell or she would commit suicide. But the other novels are more realistic, I think, and more applicable to ordinary life where, for instance, in this country, we see the evolution of, of morality. It has been the case that same-sex marriage would have been unspeakable and unimaginable in the 1950s. And then it starts getting talked about in recent years. And the older generation is against it. They're just completely against it. But younger people, including Christian fundamentalists, they don't care. They don't care as much. You can't take these social issues and, and rouse them and get them out to vote. It just doesn't work anymore because there's a natural evolution of morality and consciousness coming from the younger people, the younger generation. Joyce Carol Oates, you've got 
50 books. I don't even know how many because each time I look, there's There's something else. There's more. It's like toadstools (laughs) growing in a night. Well, I mean, obviously, um, you know, someone once asked you, uh, do you write quickly? And you said, no, you write whenever I can. I write whenever I I can. I write for long periods. I sort of stay with it. (laughs) Do do you do a lot of rewriting? Oh, yes. Yes, I do a lot of rewriting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like to rewrite. To me, that's pleasure. The first draft is difficult. It's like walking uphill through a thicket. But the second, third drafts are very pleasurable. And rewriting this a couple years ago was great pleasure. When you've written that many books, um, I mean, I can ask this of people who've written five, six books. How did your book change you? Does each book change you in some way at this point? Well, I'm not sure you mean in, in a kind of statistical way or you mean inward or inward inwardly yeah does finishing a book like the accursed change in any way your view of the world is a book like daddy love well let's see the accursed dealt with many ideas that i'm very interested in like darwinian evolutionary theory and the confrontation of biblical received opinions to me that's an idea those are ideas that i'm i'm very interested in so i wouldn't say that the novel changed that is one means in which i dealt with that idea i mean i might tomorrow i might write something else that dealt with the idea in a different way or i might write a young adult novel that dealt with that idea it's more that i'm working on certain themes or ideas and different expressions of it. If you look at a filmmaker who had work somewhat of a kind, like Martin Scorsese, you could probably go through his movies and you'll see with some seeming aberrations, you know, uh, like The Age of Innocence, um, which is a novel, um, which is a, a movie of his that seems a little different. But you sort of look at all these movies and you see the themes of Scorsese and each one is some variation on it. Which is what you were saying before about Mon and Joyce. And yeah, so he, pro- he probably could not say that Goodfellas changed his life, but it was one more stepping stone in, in expressing this. And maybe there are other filmmakers like Stanley Kubrick that's maybe even more applicable to them, who have these great masterworks that are quite different, but probably have some of the same ideas. So on some level, I guess, if somebody were to attempt to read the full work of Joyce Carol Oates, they would be able to pinpoint a lot of that. And some of that you wouldn't know. Well, I'm sure that's true, but I don't think anyone could read all of it. (laughs) Why not? I don't. I mean, I don't. Well, you first, wrote it all. <laughs> well, I wrote it all over a period of years, but uh, I'm not sure that anybody could, or even should, try to read it all. I mean, I couldn't reread it myself. I don't think I'd start skipping. I started skipping ahead. <laughs> Philip Ross said he's, he was going to reread all of his novels, and he only got a certain point, and he sort of stopped. Well, when you look back, I mean, I noticed I, this is the third time I've interviewed you. And I noticed you've brought up Blonde more than once. Is that, do you, do you see that book maybe standing out among all of your books? Then? I think so. I think it represented a lot of profound, and maybe that's an answer to your question, some sort of an inner. It was very, very profound. Whatever, whatever mysterious experience it was to write it, 
I can't probably paraphrase it or explain it, but it was quite, to me, it was quite monumental. And the accursed, do you see yourself going back again to the turn of the 20th century? Oh, I don't think I would do that. No, I think I've done that. But the one thing I left out, I realized when I was being questioned at City Arts and Lectures, I just, I didn't put in Jack Johnson, who was the the black heavyweight champion. I'm not sure that he was a champion at that time, but he was going to be like in 1909. I should have put Jack Johnson in, like an, in a newspaper, because it would have really upset these white racists. There's this black man from Galveston. He's a heavyweight. He's such a good boxer, and the white men are afraid to box him. I could have put that in, and I didn't, and I'm really sorry about that. You've been listening to an interview with Joyce Carol Oates, whose latest novels are The Accursed and Daddy Love. I'm Richard Walensky for Open Book. For more information about this show, go to bookwaves.com, where you'll also find an extended version of this interview. of doing that is serving neighborhood and community like KPFA. Thanks for helping to make the world a better place for our future by supporting KPFA. Thank you, KPFA. Please remember to pay your pledge. That's right, and if you haven't donated, you can still go to kpfa.org where you can see a complete list of all our gifts to you and donate securely. Like the scout said, Do your best. Please remember to pay your pledge.